Welcome to A Christian and a Buddhist Walk Into a Bar. My name is Jamal. I'm a Buddhist. My name is Jacob. I am a Christian. And we are here in a very unique situation, Jacob. We are here of an evening. We are here of an evening. I was wondering where this was going, looking around me going, this this looks like the podcast studio. It's because it's a windowless room and you can't tell anything about what's going on outside. It's going to be dark and cold when I walk outside. I meant to remember to bring a scarf and then I completely forgot because it was lovely when I left home. Yeah, know? it's totally fine. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, we're recording of an evening today. Um, hopefully that will not impact anything uh, noticeable in the podcast, but we've just given you, it away. You probably won't get children's time breaking <laughs> through. That's true. Story time is not going to happen in the library this evening. Um, And we have a very special episode for you today, dear listeners. Um, Look, I want to start this episode by giving a really big shout out to everyone who's listened to the podcast so far. Um, We've been really blown away by the level of interest and engagement and support. Um, You know, we we made the podcast without any real in intentions or ideas about how many people we were trying to re- reach and all that kind of stuff but like it, it's been it's been really wonderful to see people really get involved um so th- thank you everybody we appreciate the ego stroke that yeah. we get when we see the numbers come through <laughs> <laughs> all those, those 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 huge huge podcast numbers in the tens love it love it um i, I dream of having a hundred people listen to our podcast one day It'd be great um but uh as a so, uh, actually, I will say this, Jacob. So, we, we have, uh, I don't know, got a handful of listeners um, that listen regularly. However, As is about to become apparent, I'm not sure how many of them are not my close family. But, <laughs> but, but, but this is the thing, actually. I'm, if you're not my close family and you listen to the podcast, email us at christianbuddhistbar at gmail.com just so that I know you exist. That would be great. <laughs> Well, this is exactly my point, is that we may have very few listeners uh, in the scheme of all podcasts in the world, but we have very engaged listeners. We have listeners who do write in and who do uh, want to be part of the conversation and want to uh, want to join the virtual bar with us, um, be they Christians or Buddhists or otherwise. Um, and today's episode is all about those listeners who've um, taken the time out of their day to write in. So yeah, this is a bit of a thank you. This is a bit of a shout out. Uh, and we have some questions that listeners have sent us. Um, we're calling this episode our listener mailbox episode. It's hopefully the first of many. Um, n- next time it'll be filled with people that are not Jacob's relations. Maybe, maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll see. see. Um, but look, if you are if you are a relation of Jacob, please do continue to feel free to write in. Um, but yeah, it's um, so we we have we have a couple of um, emails, a couple of questions. Uh, I thought we'd go through them and just respond. Uh, in our usual meandering kind of way and, and see where we go. Sounds like a plan. All right. So I think, Jamal, you have the first question or, or connected questions. I do. Uh, and this this one's from Cameron. So um, thanks for writing in, Cameron. We, Hi, Cameron. We appreciate it. Yeah, yeah actually. It's, uh, after every every uh, after every letter, Jacob's just going to give a personalised <laughs> message to whichever one of his family members. Cameron, who is listening to us from the address of thing and can be <laughs> contacted on this mobile phone number. No. Very good. Uh, so Cameron says, um, I'm really enjoying the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Also, I'm glad you fixed your audio issues. I do much prefer the results from the studio. Um, so do we. Uh, Jamal especially was a bit hard to hear, although I'm grateful for the opportunity to learn of the existence of Barreled Bolt, although I don't recall hearing him at all, but maybe I forgot. I was surprised in the edit, actually, because Barreled, he was moving around a little bit 
when we were recording those, but yeah. the listeners would never have known. No, and um, and yes, Barrel Bolt is a is a key key part of the podcast. He's uh, Jamal's muse. <laughs> yes, pretty much. Um, so also, I found the rambling episode quite interesting. Happy to listen to more of those. Uh, noted. Uh, and and I remember Jacob, we we both said we I think uh, instinctually didn't love the rambling episode, but this is the second email that we got. That says they like the rambling episodes. Yeah, so. we've had a, a, a little bit of good feedback on the rambling episodes. So, again, if you have a contrary view, christianbuddhasbar at gmail.com is the place to go to make sure that you do or don't get more rambling episodes. We'll see how rambly we get in. It's already feeling a bit rambly this evening. so <laughs> That's all good. It's, um, it's, it's, it's nighttime uh, that, that happens. Um, one thing I found quite interesting is the exploration of one faith or worldview. This is the, Cameron but, again. This is not. Yeah, yes, sure. this is. Sorry. One thing I found quite interesting is the exploration of one faith or worldview from the perspective of another, especially the way some of Jamal's questions help me think about some ideas I share with Jacob and also I take for granted. That's that's what we we're hoping for here, so thanks, Cameron. Uh, and here's, here's the crux of it. Um, an interesting point of conversion that I noticed was that both Christianity and Buddhism seem to say there's suffering in the world and humanity can't just pull itself together and fix it or remove that suffering which is very different from a popular narrative that humanity is on this inevitable trajectory of growing up towards being better, kinder, etc. I think that the technical term for this school of thought was mentioned at one point, but I forget it. I think the, It'd be enlightenment, I think, this, this idea that humanity is progressing towards some inevitable brilliance. Yeah, or like a liberal humanism, or yep. some kind of riff off of that. It yeah. kind of like flows out of thinkers like... Um, Rousseau and um, Descartes and and that kind of thing, just a, you know, name drop. Yeah, yeah. Throw old, old dead Frenchman. Yes. Although, <laughs> although actually, I so I I once learned a term um, called Whig history. Have you heard of Whig history? I've not heard of Whig history. So, Whig history. W h i g. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's where like the Whig political movement kind of came from. And essentially, Whig history is this idea that um that, yeah, that we were kind of growing towards a progressive, more egalitarian society and, you know, humanity is on this trajectory. And so it's viewing history. It's it's You could probably equate it with, like, Martin Luther's, like uh, Martin Luther King's the, the arc of history is long and bends towards justice kind of statement. It's a very Whig history statement. Um, well, yeah, so viewing history through the lens of kind of this inevitable progress towards some kind of egalitarian enlightenment thing. That's interesting. Like the, the Whigs, just as an aside for anyone who doesn't, for everyone who doesn't know, <laughs> is um, they were a political party in the the UK for a period of time. They're probably their heirs would be the Liberal Democrats mm. if you follow um, UK politics. Or Liberal Democrats in the UK very different to here in Australia. Yes, um, but they're kind of like these progressive elites, like not Labour in any way, shape, or form, not working class at all, but. Also not conservative. Yeah. Um, but the the that was, that was an aside because we don't edit. It's not going to get edited out. Oh, well. um, <laughs> the the arc of history is long and bends towards justice. I'm I find that interesting from Martin Luther King, who was of course a Christian preacher, like before he was a um, a black rights campaigner, and it it's just it's a really Christian idea. In a lot of ways, that the the arc of history bends towards justice, but not left to its own devices. It bends towards justice because God is in control of the arc of history, and God bends it towards justice. Mm. I just I find that just an interesting 
Interesting to remember that Martin Luther King Jr. was a Christian preacher. He's not just this secular humanist who pops out of nowhere. Yeah, and, well, and I think, um, you know, I, I think, you know, we talk about religion and politics all the time here, but I think that idea that there's this big political movement, because it wasn't just Martin Luther King. I think the whole civil rights movement was deeply embedded in the um, the Southern Baptist Church and in the kind of the real religious uh, rights of black Americans, um, you know, as as equals under God and that kind of thing. I, you know, I, I think it's very, very difficult to separate um, that kind of that era of civil rights with with the church. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what just one of the things I find extraordinary about this is just the way that you know, well, from the era of slavery in the US right through to the civil rights movement and even now, the way that this religion that the white people brought to them and were trying to use to, um, you know, put them in their place and keep them in their place is then appropriated. And that um, the black church reads the stories of Exodus where um, Israel is in slavery in Egypt and Moses has to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, and Pharaoh doesn't, and Moses says it again a few times. There's a Disney film about this. Yeah. Uh, and, and then they go out and they cross the Red Sea and God leads them to the Promised Land. But they, they looked at those stories which the white slave owners brought to them as Christianity and they said, oh, this is us. God's on our side. Mm. Um, deeply subversive. I love it. We've yeah. strayed from Cameron's question already. <laughs> well, we have, but no, but this is the point, right? Like, I, this, the, you know, <laughs> listener questions uh, prompt us in all sorts of directions. And the one final thing I want to say on that, which is I think it's an important one, is that um, there's another book I was reading recently which talked about the kind of the Christian concept of the nobility of suffering and the nobility of slavery. And, you know, yeah, with that history uh, in in the kind of Judeo-Christian texts of the slave peoples being the holy peoples. Mm. You know, I, I think it's there's an interesting discussion that can be had, and I, yeah, we don't have time to go into this discussion here, but around um, whether or not kind of you think about modern civil rights, you think about kind of modern, um, I, I, I hate this term, but the, 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 it's the most useful term for it, modern like woke culture. Um, this is not a Ben Shapiro or Joe Rogan <laughs> podcast, by the way. We're not criticizing modern work culture, um, but but there is this sense that like that that kind of political movement draws a lot of its inspiration from this idea that those who are oppressed are holy, mm. that like you know that, that, it, that there's some nobility in oppression, and that yeah I, I don't know I, I, there's a lot of tangents there, but I, I find that a really interesting link. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it was the same guy that you were reading, but a, a British historian called Tom Holland makes the connection um, between this, yeah, the, the nobility of suffering, if you like. Or the, I think it was um, Tom Holland, yeah. Um, and the Me Too movement. And he says that the, the, the Me Too movement is just incomprehensible without Christianity, which for some conservative Christians might seem like a really strange thing. But I, I think he makes a really valid point that victims matter. Mm, absolutely. Um, just yeah. uh, so... To, Back to the substance of Cameron's question for a moment. Um, has faith in human progress declined? I, I'm hesitant to say yes, but I think probably yes, it has. I mean, this you kind of see this happen in some ways after each of the world wars within Europe. Mm. Um, but in in a lot of ways, I 
I think that the philosophical movement of postmodernism is a move away from this idea that humanity can fix everything. Um, and, it, and it's also a movement away from certainty and a movement away from capital T truth and a bunch of other things. But I think that's, I think part of that is a recognition that, well, actually we're, we're limited in our ability to, to change the world. Well, I, yes and no, though, because I think that maybe there's a move away from that in on an individual level. But I think on a societal level, we're putting all of our eggs in that basket. I mean, climate change is the biggest example of humanity making a very, very risky bet that it's going to invent some technology that will help resolve the problem in the future, right? Like, you know, all of the Paris Agreement's models are based on carbon capture and storage, uh, you know, uh, designs that are unproven and unproven at scale. Uh, and so rather than engage with a process of um, restraint and uh, less, you know, less extractive practices and less uh, use of greenhouse gases in our modern world, um, all of the world's governments have effectively placed a bet on humanity, uh, you know, fixing, you know, being able to fix everything by its by its own technological prowess. So a final comment on this, and then we can mm. move right on because otherwise it's going to become Cameron's mailbag, not, <laughs> not the listeners, um, is that I think you're right at a government level. Mm. Um, but the the whole resurgence of um, right-wing politics, right-wing populism mm. across the West is a rebellion exactly against that, going, mm. well, actually the governments can't fix this and they're trying to hoodwink us in various ways to, to think that they are. So... Maybe it's maybe it's a split view. Maybe humanity as a whole has a split personality or something. I maybe right. Um, but as I said, we'll we'll, we'll try and wrap this up on Cameron's question. Uh, at the end of the email, uh, Cameron says, however, it seems to me that the belief that only humanity, by its own efforts, can achieve the goal of removing suffering and building utopia, etc., has stuck around much more, leading to the despair of if we don't, no one will. But I but I digress, and Cameron, so do we. <laughs> We'll take that as comment. <laughs> we'll take that as comment. Um, uh, the, the final thing in Cameron's email is that um, I, I have to make a public announcement that, Cameron, I have read your joke and I have deemed your joke not worthy for, um, for putting on the podcast. Um, I did not understand your joke. Uh, Jacob explained your joke to me and it was still not funny. So uh, I apologise, but your joke is not making it into this episode. But thank you. And please feel free to submit another joke um, preferably, preferably a more funny joke. That'd be great. And I'll just I'll, I'll put out there too. General announcement to Cameron and all listeners and Jamal that your dignity and worth as a human being is not dependent on the quality of your jokes. <laughs> that, that's right, true. I, God I, save us all if it is, and thankfully God does save us all. Yes, I, I'm glad this is an audio medium and um, not a written medium where my, my dripping sarcasm can hopefully be picked up on the mics a little bit stronger than it would over text. Alrighty, on to listener comment number two. Uh, and that is from Wendy. Hello, Wendy. Uh, Wendy says that she has just, she also couldn't hear the dog. Um, but the big plus is that, Jamal, you no longer sound like you have a, your head in a can since we've been back in the podcast studio. So that's nice. Winning. Um, she's just listened to our podcast on non-attachment, which was, I think, three or four episodes ago now. Uh, and a lot about suffering too and offers some thoughts. Uh you spoke, Jamal, um, about what you do with feelings that come from suffering, i.e. non-attachment, Wendy says. 
Such a me measured response is ideal and is a goal in Buddhism and Christianity, but each reaches that position differently. As a Christian and one who has experienced suffering on a number of levels, I don't believe that I alone have to achieve that non-attachment to my suffering. Jesus knows suffering on every level that we as humans do. He has lived through suffering and died, the ultimate consequences of suffering, yet he came through the other side to life once more. So while suffering at its worst defeats us in death, Jesus went that step further and defeated death and therefore suffering once and for all. Long story short, there are two ways for me as a Christian to detach from my suffering. Firstly, I can know that Jesus has experienced and therefore knows the suffering that I experience. Secondly, I can give it to him. There's the detachment. That's the hardest part, but while I'm working at handing it over to Jesus, he's with me, helping me carry it. I have many more thoughts that came up during this episode, but I better leave it there. I did enjoy the two of you just ad-libbing and wouldn't mind it again occasionally. There you go. More more pros for the for the ad lib. Tick that up in the column. <laughs> Ravel. What's your your response to that? Um, yeah. Look, I I I'm really interested by this um by this comment, and um you know I I think I you know thanks thanks so much for sending sending it in, Wendy. I think I really I can feel through your words here how how much you live this and how like how how embodied all of all of the spirituality is for you, and I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing to witness. You know, I, I can I can witness it through through the email. Um, it's something that I'm still working on doing. Right, I you know I I think it's it's one thing to believe something, and it's one thing to uh, you know theoretically be able to engage with it, and then it's another thing to actually sit there day to day and actually experience it. Um, totally. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of this Buddhist idea of um, going for refuge. So there's this concept in Buddhism called taking refuge, and um, you know, you traditionally I think we talked about this a bit in the last episode. We might have, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you traditionally take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The Buddha being the the person of the Buddha um, and the teacher. The Dharma being the teachings and the wisdom itself, and the Sangha being the community of monastics. Um, and I feel like that's probably one of the things in Buddhism that's probably most akin to giving yourself to Jesus or to kind of this sense of um of of having Jesus take your suffering and and carry that with you. Um so yeah, I think that that sense of refuge is really interesting. It's um it's kind of this acknowledgement that you can't walk the path alone and that, you know, it's really important to not only have a teacher and spiritual friends around you to help you understand that, but also the teachings to help you guide and all of that. So I, I see a lot of really big parallels there. So would you say that like the, the Buddha or the the community takes on that suffering in some way, or is it just does it just help you to process it? I think it's the latter, right? I, I, I think at the core teaching of Buddhism is that you do have to process your suffering yourself. You know, no one can do that for you. I can't give you my karma and you, know, you can't take it for me. It's the same way that the Buddha can't take my karma mm -hmm. for me. You know, this is, I think, probably one of the key differences uh, with Christianity and Buddhism is you know, Buddhism is really focused on this idea that the individual has to go through the work themselves and has to go through the process of, of dealing with that. Um, and, yeah, and I think maybe the one thing in this kind of – in the sentiment that, that Wendy's expressed here that I think I probably – as a Buddhist, maybe take a slightly different stance on is this idea that the, the, it's this line: "So suffering, def, suffering at its worst, defeats us in death." Uh, and I think there was another another line 
um, that it's uh, yeah, so that 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 Jesus died, which was the ultimate consequences of suffering. You know, and and I guess Buddhism maybe has a different perspective on death and a different perspective on the role that suffering plays in in death and all of that. So you know, in Buddhism, suffering is samsara; it's kind of the world, uh, and the world we inhabit is is kind of its nature is that of suffering, right? That it's you know, that it's not like it's you know always trying to make you suffer, but it's this idea that you know you're always going to suffer because you have karma, and the nature of the world is as such that it doesn't satisfy your karma, you will always have a level of suffering. Um, and death isn't... I mean, death death is a continuation of suffering in so much as that you get reborn and unless you've become enlightened, you get born back into samsara. But, like, I guess death is just a spot in the cycle for Buddhism. It's not some consequence of suffering. I think it's a different... Is, is it not, like, the... Is it not amongst the worst spots in the cycle? Not necessarily, right? Because it's some, you know, in some ways death can be a release from suffering. You know, um, Well, not if you're going to be reborn again as something that's going to be back. Like, be, because you, you, yeah. Yeah, but, but, but I guess this is the point, though, that it's neutral. It's no better or worse than anything else, right? Like, you know, if you are old and infirm and really sick and in a lot of su- physical suffering and then you die then you're no longer in that physical suffering and you get reborn and suddenly you're a baby and you have a whole lot of different suffering there. Like, like yeah, but I, I guess death is... So this is Buddhism like kind of... Because it, I think the Christian answer to that of, of death being the ultimate suffering is because death is is actually like there's a finality to death. It is mm, the end yes. of existence, um, which is not not how you say it. Yes, exactly, right? It's, it's, the, it's not the end of existence. It's just the end of the particular form of existence that you're experiencing right now. And because there's not that finality, you know, it, you know, I mean, I, it, this is, the Buddhism, Buddhism doesn't say this, but like it could be thought about like death is like going to sleep, right? You know, you, you know. Christianity says. But yeah, but like, you know, like when you die, you're going to sleep and then you wake up the next morning and like, you know, I mean, we can go to philosophical bits about whether or not you're the same person or not when you wake up from when you go to sleep. And there's an excellent question there about like, you know, what is the Buddhist concept of a soul or consciousness or yes. whatever that continuity. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and I, I just think maybe that's this probably, probably the only core thing in that, in what Wendy said here that I think I might stand on a different side of the fence from, right? And it's just that, you know, death is not a consequence of suffering in Buddhism. You know, death is just part of the cycle. It's just, it's it's not good, it's not bad, it's just neutral. It's just something that happens. Um, and actually, realistically, if you become enlightened, death is the moment when you do not get reborn again. So actually, when the Buddha died, the Buddha, that was the Buddha's ascendance to Nirvana, you know? Like, the Buddha didn't go to Nirvana the minute he got enlightened. He stuck around for 60 more years doing stuff until he died. Is that usual? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, like, like you know, it, it's it's not it's not unusual. Yeah. Um but yeah, so it's but it's, it, that's the thing, right? When someone becomes enlightened, um they live out their natural life and then they just don't get reborn again. You know, and and, and so so death isn't you know, in 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 those cases death is actually the ultimate good or death is the thing that then you know, lets you release and leave samsara forever. You know, so many questions here. I'll, I'll just, I'll just voice one. Okay. And, um, which because I was under the impression that you get enlightened and 
they you're off you <laughs> you're there so but like so is it possible to get unenlightened having been enlightened before no. you die no okay so there's no danger no, you're good. no. You're good. so and so the, the there's, there's a lot of theology here, but um, there's not only <laughs> what else are we here for? <laughs> so when you become enlightened, you you see the true nature of the world. So once, essentially, it's like once you've seen the true nature of the world, you can't unsee it, right? And not only that, there are multiple steps on enlightenment. There's like there's like save points on your way. So there's, there's one there's one kind of associated with like the first jhana called stream enterer, and there's generally this sense that if you achieve stream entry, you're not going to get enlightened in this lifetime but you can never regress. You'll always, every lifetime, become closer to enlightenment. So, like, one thing that a lot of Buddhists, it's a particularly yeah, okay, Sri Lankan thing for whatever reason, but, yeah. like, they're always trying to achieve stream entry. Yeah. But well, it's like, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to get to the point if where I can't If I get to this level, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Then I won't, I won't go backwards, you know. Uh, and, Man, and, we've, got to, and, we've got to spend an episode and, on that. And, and then there's another level called a once returner, which is once you, you get to that point, you're like, okay, you've got one more life. You're going to come back and you'll, you'll definitely get enlightened next time. And so you can get to a once returner level that's like the next spot up. And yeah. I'm, I'm just going to leave <laughs> just gonna all leave. of the questions that I've got. We'll, we'll pick that up later. Um, but one, one thing I will just <clears throat> will just say, I, I appreciate the way that you've worded this, Wendy. It's, it's great. Mm. Um, and just to, to add to that with the, the death as a consequence of suffering, I guess, or the finality of it, um, is just thinking about Jesus' death specifically. Like, it's obviously a gruesome, suffering death. Like, I mean, crucifixion, it was chosen as criminal punishment by the Romans for a reason. It's, it's a very unpleasant um, form of torture. Um, but also, there's the the... Christian tradition holds that in various ways that Jesus, between his death and resurrection, um, he went, he went down to the dead or into um, Hades or hell. Um, some of the some of the statements of faith put it, and so he he experienced the absence of God, um, as it were, completely. For and for one who is God, that's a like that's a pretty incredible thing to experience and so it, it's not just that he died a particularly sufferingy death but then he was also dead and suffering in a particular way kind of pre-resurrection like you know, god was doing stuff in those three days jesus isn't just hanging in a tomb waiting to be resurrected yeah yeah so I think we will now mailbag number three. We're, mailbag we're number running three. slightly behind schedule, but Th- that's okay. It's looking all right. uh, this is a short question. This is from Helen, um, and Helen, uh, she says, Jamal, you were talking about letting everything go and not viewing anything as permanent. I would be interested to find out the Buddhist view on relationships, particularly partners and having children. Is this something that is a good idea, or is it something that needs to be let go? That's a really good question, Helen. Um, it's such a good question. We've actually planned a couple of follow-up follow <laughs> episodes to help uh, answer that question, but I, I, I can answer part of it now. Um, so I think this goes to this idea in Buddhism that um, there are kind of certain rules for monastics and certain rules for non-monastics. And, you know, I think Buddhism has a fairly a fairly useful kind of sliding scale of like things that you can and should do depending on where, how far along the path you are. And, and a monastic's kind of by definition further along the path? 
Um, monastics like are more or less, as far as you can tell. Uh, not necessarily. Um, but okay. Monastics, by definition, have dedicated their lives to follow the path, so they're likely to be further along in the path. But you know, I, I've met some monastics that I'm not sure are further along <laughs> in the path. Um, yeah, and so, so you know, depending on the sect of Buddhism, but at least in Theravada Buddhism, which I'm most familiar with, um, when you're a monastic, you give up your family if you have any, your, your children if you have any, you don't actually give them up, but like you don't. You know, you 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 don't necessarily sever your ties with them, but you are no longer that person in society. With you're, you're not the father in relation to them. <sighs> yes and no. You are, but also your focus has shifted to be purely on the monastic life and the part of enlightenment. Um, so some examples of that. The Buddha. Um, the Buddha, before he became the Buddha, had a family, uh, had, uh, I think few wives or it was, it was back in the time in India when um, multiple uh, you know, polygamy was a thing. I think he had a few wives uh, and definitely had a few kids. And actually his son Rahula actually became a monk at some point after him. So his son Rahula became a follower. Um, but the Buddha, when he left the palace, um, and I was, I was thinking we should um, do a Buddhist episode for Christmas coming yes. up where we can, um, I can tell you the story of the Buddha and we can maybe, you know, do the nativity scene of the Buddha. Um, but um, but so essentially, uh, the, the Buddha was a prince, and when he left that life to go and seek enlightenment, um, he left behind his family, he left behind his children. He you know he he left that all behind because I guess at that point, um, the those connections to the the world were you know inhibiting on that ability to really truly let go. So there is a point at which your family connections and your children and your partners. Do they are sources for attachment which you have to let go? So at that point, where you where you're letting go of that, um, does that or, or maybe it doesn't necessarily, but could that actually do harm and bring suffering to your you know family and children in this scenario? Who you're kind of stepping aside from? Um, yes, it could, which is why most very you know most reputable um, monasteries will kind of require you to, you know, at the very least swear a vow that you're not leaving anyone behind too badly. So, you know, you can't become a monk. Because you're kind of leaving people behind because you're going yeah. further down the path, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so you can't become a monk if you have debts. You can't become a monk if you have um, kind of child-rearing responsibilities. So, you know, realistically, no one's going to let you become a monk if your kid's four years old. Um, Is that universal or would, or would that be in Australian Buddhism? Or, I, I, or like again, I think it's more just intention. Like, yeah, okay. I'm sure there are places in the world that didn't. Um, the counterpoint to that is my father became a monk when, when I was about two years old. But his his point or his, um, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't have any parenting responsibilities of us at that time. Yep. So, you know, there, there was a different circumstance. Different circumstance yep. there, yeah. Um, but... Um, but it's this thing where, like, you know, yeah, you it is kind of, you know, there's a gen, there's, a, there's a a general sensibility test that's applied. That's like, yeah, you can't have responsibilities that people are dependent on you that you are leaving them behind to go and be a monk. The the monasteries tend to look down upon that. They probably won't accept you if you're doing that. Um, and there are some uh, there are some lineages in Buddhism that allow you to have families. You know, most of the Mahayana traditions, the Zen monks in Japan, the Chan monks in China, um, you know, that they, they all they all can all have families. It's kind of like um, you know, Protestant 
ministers and that kind mm. of stuff. Um, so, so that's kind of the monastics. And yeah, so to, to answer the question, Helen, it's yes, like essentially at some point along the path, having partners and having children, having a family will need to be let go. Um, because, you know, they're a really common source of attachment. They're a really common source of clinging and craving and aversion. And if the if the path is that you want to let go of those things, then yes, at some point you will need to not let go of those people. Those people can still have roles in your life. Uh, my my favorite monk, Ajahn Brahm, um, would go back and visit his mom every couple of years, you know. like So he's still got a bit of attachment. Yeah. Well, yeah. he's still connected to them. I'm not sure. Yeah. And I guess this is the difference. Or is between- that not a... Sorry. So I, I think attachment is the the kind of the clinging. So, you, you, you know, you can be connected to someone and not be attached to that person. And I think that's the distinction there. So it's kind of cultivating that inner sense of... Yes. Yeah. So, you know, for example, um, you know, Ajahn Brahm would go visit his mother, but his mother died uh, over, you know, a few years ago. And I would imagine that he wasn't, you know, he was probably sad about it, but he wasn't like so distraught and you know bes- you know besotted by grief over that fact because he wasn't so attached to it if that makes sense that that makes perfect sense but i mean would you still not say he was a little bit attached like i mean this is hypothetical mm. so arjun brahm if you're listening this we're not um putting anything on you in particular mm. but if if somebody was not besotted by grief at the death of their mother but was a little bit sad would you not say that they're just they're a little bit attached as opposed to a lot attached Maybe. Um, I think it depends. It depends about. It depends on the role you think kind of intrinsic emotion plays and whether or not, like, you know, if I get punched in the face and it stings, is that. Is that me being attached to the pain or yeah, me being averse to being punched in the or face? Attached or, to your face. Or, 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 yeah. or is it just the physical reaction that happens when someone punches me in the face? You know, so, so I think that there's a layering there. Right? You can have a. A kind of a knee-jerk reaction to something based on how you feel about it. But I think most people would say that the attachment and the craving kick in when it's your response to that reaction, not the reaction itself. But isn't that like a an inbuilt attachment in a like like that we're we're ultimately attached if if, if you think of human beings as mm. consciousness for a moment mm. with all the problems that entails but that we're attached to our bodies like kind of whether we'd like to be or not and so we we feel that pain and we respond to it well, well and i think maybe this is that maybe this is that really makes this is an important distinction maybe right so it's like that attach that detachment is not not having emotions Right, like I, I think that there's a presumption here that being unattached is to not have an emotion, but it's not actually that. It's to not have a reaction to an emotion. So, you know, you can be the most enlightened being in the world, and a tiger jumps you. You're still going to get scared, but it's what do you, you know, it's do you run and scream when you're scared, or do you calmly just say, "Oh, I'm feeling a bit scared now," and you know, go and pat the tiger. You know, like like that—that's the difference, <laughs> and right? Promptly die and <laughs> yeah, therefore achieve whatever. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. But but yeah. So but but I think this is that thing, right? I think you know that it's fine to have. You know, Buddhism doesn't say don't have emotions. It just says don't be caught up in your reactions and you know what 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 those emotions drive you to do. And I think that's probably the distinction. Which, yeah. So 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 getting back to this point on um partners and children, I think you know 
yes, you probably at some point need to let that go. But the other really big thing in Buddhism is it really draws a line between what it expects the lay people to do and what it expects monastics to do. Um, so, you know, there is no requirement on anyone that isn't a monastic to not have partners and not have children and not have, raise a family and not do that. That's a really, you know, accepted and it's an opt-in part. requirement if you're a monastic. Like, correct. You, no, no one's forcing anyone to be a monastic. No, exactly. Yeah, and so yeah, you know, and and a lot of the times. I, th- I would say it's almost more common for monastics to leave monasticism to go and have children than it would be for monastics to join monasticism to get away from their partners and children. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a thing that, um, you know, that, yeah, you know, it, absolutely, you can have partners, you can have children. I mean, you know, Buddhism has a lot of opinions about ways you can interact with partners and children and the right ways to have partners and children and, and how you can... Um, have those relationships in your life that are conducive to following the path, and this is kind of what we'll get to in, in future episodes. Um, but yeah, I think it's a it's a really interesting point there, and it's a really really good question, Helen. That it's um, I think there's a there's and I think it goes to this core assumption that you know, well, there's this idea of this stoic monk that doesn't have any reactions and doesn't have any connections to the world and sits alone in a cave, and it's like, I, I you know, I think that's maybe that's some monks, but that's just not the standard, and actually having partners, having children, having connections to the world, you know, it, it's part of everyone's life, you know. And so I, I would say there are many, many more Buddhist teachings that talk about how to have relationships uh, that are supportive of Buddhist practice rather than that tell you not to have relationships. I'm looking forward to unpacking this mm. more um, over a couple of episodes that, to come soon. Yes. Uh, I, I can feel that the words a Buddhist and a Christian walked into a bar are marching inexorably towards this conversation, Jamal. And so I'll just throw out one last one. This hasn't come through the email, but this is just a, a mate and I were yarning during the week. And and he asked me, does Jamal actually go into a bar? Because isn't one of the five principles of Buddhism that you shouldn't drink alcohol? Uh, yes, uh, yes and yes is the answer to that. Um, so I do I do walk into bars and I do drink alcohol, um, but it is also true that w- one of the five precepts of Buddhism is not to drink alcohol. Um, the the kind of the short version story of that is that uh, for many many years when when I became a Buddhist I didn't drink alcohol I, I kept the five precepts kind of to the letter, um, and there was a point uh, a few years ago where. Um, a Buddhist friend of mine, we were talking about practice and talking about kind of things we needed to develop in practice. And one of the things that she said to me, which I felt was quite profound, uh, was, you know, I think we were, we were discussing stuff and she turned to me and just went, you just need to take things a bit less seriously, hey? And I was like, yeah, actually, I probably do need to take <laughs> things less seriously. And so since then, I've kind of been bringing into my practice, I guess, this idea of not being so uh, rigid and not being so, like, sticking to everything by the word exactly as it is written um, because that, for me, is a version of clinging and attachment, right? I, I was attached to my reading of the teachings exactly as they were. Um, and so, yes, nowadays, on occasion, I do drink. Um, I I guess I interpret that precept to mean... So, so the, the precept of not drinking is built around this idea that um, if you drink, you will lose control of your mental faculties and then break the other precepts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess for me, what I 
endeavor to do and what I commit to doing is not ever drinking to the point at which I feel like I'm not making rational, well-thought-out decisions. Uh, so, you know, I will go and have a drink or maybe a couple, but, you know, I, don't, I think it's been, you know, it's probably been more than 10 years since I've had uh, three or four drinks in a night. So that's kind of the principle rather than the letter of the law. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yes, uh, this Buddhist does walk into a bar. Uh, and um, it, which does remind me of the other time this other Christian and other Buddhist walked into Definitely a bar. Definitely not us. <laughs> Definitely not us. Uh, and and they walked into a bar and they saw um they, they saw they saw a woman in a in a postal office uniform um because you know it, it was it was the day that they were reading all the letters from their fans and so you know they 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 saw this woman in the in the postal office uniform. Uh, and she um, and they went up. They went up to her and was like, "Hey, you know, you're just reading a letter." It's like, "Oh, well, what's this letter you got here?" And she's like, "Oh, this is like a follow up letter." So she says, "You know, one day this letter, this letter came in to me in the postal office, and it was a you know shaky handwriting, and it was um, it was addressed to God, and it had no address mm-hmm. on it. Just said, you know, dear, dear God, uh, I'm an 83 year old widow living on a very small pension, and yesterday someone stole my purse. It had a hundred dollars in it, which is all the money I had until my next pension check." And next Sunday is Christmas, and I had invited two of my friends over for dinner. And without that money, I have nothing to buy food with, and I have no family to turn to. And you are my only hope. Can you please help me? Sincerely, Edna. Um, and so the postal worker was like, you know, she was deeply touched, and she was like, "Yeah, I showed this letter to all the other workers, and we did a, we did a collection round at the post office." Uh, and you know, everyone everyone dug into their wallets and gave some money. And by the time we made the rounds, they'd collected ninety five dollars. So they put the $95 in the envelope and sent it back to Edna. And the rest of the day, they were, they were like, oh, this is great. You know, we, we love this. We're helping Edna share Christmas with her friends. And then a few days later, she's like, and this letter came a few days later. And it's from the same old lady. And it's, you know, dear God, how can I ever thank you enough for what you did for me? Because of your gift of love, I was able to fix a glorious dinner with my friends. We had a very nice day. And I told my friends of your wonderful gift. By the way, God... There was five dollars missing, missing, and I think it must have been those bastards at the post office. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a human sinfulness, you could. Say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but look, that's that's all we have time for today for this uh, listener mailbox. Um, I want to say thank you once again. This has been uh, this has been fun. Um, it has been one been one of those uh, rambly episodes that everyone seems to love. So ho- hope you like this one. Um, Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for your questions. You can find us at christianbuddhistbar at gmail.com. And that's right. And please, please write in again. Uh, and please tell your friends about the podcast. Let, let them know that we're here and that they can they can join us at the bar. Um, and the music is by Kevin McLeod. It certainly is. And we'll see you next week. Bye.